If you would, remain standing and open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 3. In case you were getting the notion that we're starting a, at least 150-part sermon series, let me set your mind at ease. We're not going straight through. Uh, we're just taking a break for the summer and some psalms uh, beginning next week. Uh, Joe will be preaching uh, Psalm 13, and then we'll just kind of skip through the psalms for the summer. Uh, just like the heat in uh, Louisiana and much of our country is devastating our grass and flowers. The grass fades. The flower burns up. But the word of God remains forever. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Salah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Salah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Salah. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and give him thanks. Lord, we do give you thanks for your word, especially this time that we have to spend together in your psalms. Lord, put us in this frame of mind by your spirit to consider the shame and fear of this moment. And so as your people find answers for those very things in our own life, in the person and work of Christ, shape us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Every single one of us here, young, old, no matter the demographic, knows what it feels like to feel a tremendous amount of fear, guilt, and shame. We know what it's like to not measure up in our own hearts. We know what it's like to fail. We know what it's like to have others bent against us. We know what it's like when we don't meet our own expectations, much less the expectations of others. We all know that. The question is, what do we do in those moments? Where do we turn? The more important question today is, what answer does the scripture provide in a situation like that? 
Psalm 3 is exactly that. Psalm 3 is a prayer of David when he is in trouble. He's messed up pretty bad. What a great time to talk about David and what got him in hot water. He was a failure as a father. We'll talk more about that later. He failed as a father. He failed as a king. And he's on the run for his life with his own son at his heels, Absalom. Over the past two weeks, we've walked together through the double door introduction to the Psalms. Psalm 1, door 1, showed us this blessed man who meditates on the word of God. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water. He's not self-sufficient. He is wholly dependent on these resources outside of himself. The light of the sun, the water, the soil, and there he thrives. But in Psalm 1, we also saw evil. The wicked scorn and mock and scoff. We noted how Christ perfectly fulfilled the requirements of this righteous man. In Psalm 1, we are invited to settle into who Christ is and what he's done. Then the other door in the double door introduction, Psalm 2, invites us to settle in not only to the person and work of Christ, the righteous man, but also into his kingdom. His kingdom is over all, and he wins despite other kingdoms rising against him. Conflict between the righteous and the wicked expands into the powers of the entire cosmos. And then, as Ralph Davis poetically says, Psalm 3 comes along like a bucket of cold water, and it's doused over those realities. These two beautiful pillars, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, then give way to despair in Psalm 3. They fit together, however. The same themes are involved in Psalm 3. In Psalm 2, God himself installs his king on Zion's hill. He sets him in place and says, this is my guy, and this will be my guy forever. He's going to do it, referring to the Davidic kingdom and the ultimate Davidic king, Christ himself. In Psalm 2, God declares that is going to happen. In Psalm 3, the rightful king, however, prays for deliverance for his own people because he's been displaced. He's not on Zion's hill. He's on the run. He's not ruling and reigning. He's being hunted. What happens when you smash these realities together? This is what God says he's going to do. And Psalm 3 says, but it doesn't really look like that here. I think in the force of those coming together over years and years and and time, that produces the diamond that is Psalm 3. Because Psalm 3 isn't denying the reality of Psalm 1 and 2. It's saying, here's how those things work themselves out in life. Tragedy. Hardship. Psalm 1 and 2 are beautiful indeed, yes, but until you get to Psalm 3, you have not yet heard any mention of salvation or to save. Here we have a prayer. 
much of which is about salvation. We'll set the psalm up in three movements, moving from the problem in one and two to protection in three through six, and there'll be more going on there. And then lastly, a plea and a promise. First, the problem. Look at verses one and two again. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Oh, Lord. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. The Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, this introduction isn't put there by the ESV. It's not put there by your translation. This is part of the original text. Historic introductions in the Psalms aren't completely uncommon. Several of them have brief introductions Maybe a title, maybe the the writer of the hymn, the psalm, but there are only 14 of these historic introductions that give you the historic setting, and all 14 aren't good. Bad stuff is going on, mostly to David. And then he goes on to pen a, a poem, a song. Consider the devastation of this introduction, this is very hard. David, the king of Israel, is fleeing from Absalom, his son. That's a a great Father's Day text. He's fleeing for his life. His own kid has conspired a coup against him. we go back in our text, uh, historically, we'll understand the setting a bit better. In 2 Samuel 11, we remember that all the men went off to war against the Philistines, as any good Israelite warrior should do, and David stayed where? He stayed home. Like, I'm going to stay at the palace. I'm going to break out my suntan lotion and go to my rooftop balcony and chill. And there something happened. A beauty caught his eye. Right? And it didn't stop there. He was willing to do whatever it took to have this beauty for himself. Even conspired to have one of his own trusted generals killed. Later we see David is largely an absent and dysfunctional father. In 2 Samuel 13, we read the tragedy of David's children, Tamar and Absalom, true brother and sister, same mom, same dad. Then we read of Amnon, another son of David by a different mother, sexually assaulting Tamar. And David virtually does nothing. Absalom seethes for two years in cold fury, holding his tongue, holding his sword, and at the end of two years conspires and finally kills his brother Amnon. Later, David allows Absalom to return, and when he does, Absalom isn't grateful. He begins a plot. 
he begins a coup. He goes around in a chariot and, and gathers people to himself at the gate before they could even get to David to find the advice of the king. Absalom cuts him off. He wants all the glory. He wants everybody paying attention to him. And so he begins to slowly gather a following. And ultimately, that leads to this. In 2 Samuel 15, 23, we read, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. This is David leaving the city. Because Absalom had gone to Hebron and got Ahithophel, and, and that was David's trusted right hand. That was his administrator, a really sharp guy. He, he marshaled all those resources, and then he begins to move on his father, and his father tries desperately to save his life, but not just his, but everybody else in the city. He leaves some spies behind, but he has to get out for his life. All the land wept aloud as they passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. He's fleeing because his kid wants to kill him. That's the context of this psalm. David and this band, old and young, flee Jerusalem to the wilderness. They go as far down as you can go. They go to the Jordan Valley, to the Jordan River. From the height of Mount Zion, where God's king is supposedly set on his holy hill, he goes as low as you can go. With that framing it, listen again to his plea, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. David looks at the conspiracy and sees people all around who he thought he could trust, who, who were with him in battle, and they've all gone away. Do you remember David lost a child because of his sin with Bathsheba? Do you remember what he writes in Psalm 51? It's an incredible confession. You see, yes, David's sin is right on the surface of his life. It's right here recorded in scripture for all to see, but so is this reality that he is God's covenant man and he is a man of repentance. When confronted, he would say, you're right. That is me. I'm wrong, and I need God's grace. Without his help, I am nothing. Time and time again, yes, his life is marked by these drastic upfront sins, but it is also marked by a plea for mercy. He's not cursed of God. He's not been removed from power. This is God's king. 2 Samuel 7 is still in effect. His prayer goes further in verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. God cannot save him. Everyone is looking on the outward appearance. What is flashy and not to God. They've concluded then that David is a cursed man. This must be God's will. But God is driving that train. The people are and their opinions are. David is cursed. And he needs to be kicked out. There are two directions we could think about this as the people of God. 
One way is to, to see attacks that come against us as the people of God. One commentator notes, today the world without and Satan within disparage the true Christian's faith in the triune God. I think he's exactly right. From without and within, we can hear this voice sometimes in our own heart, in our own mind. When we're honest, there's, there's no salvation for you and God. You've messed up way too bad for him to ever save the likes of you. Look at David. I think to some degree, again, every one of us deals with that. I've done something terrible. There's, there's no saving me. Either we say this to ourselves or perhaps even in pride, we've said it about someone else. Look at that person. Look at what they just did. I don't think anyone here is being hunted by your own children. If you are, come to me and let me know after the service. We'll call the police together. But many of you here do know the reality of being betrayed. We know the reality of having broken trust. We know the reality deeply of broken family dynamics. We know the reality of hard friendships and hard marriages. Spurgeon wrote, it is bitter, the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in our God. In our lowest places, when things are most broken, we can sometimes again hear this in the back of our head, there is no help for you. You're helpless. Hopeless. We convince ourselves that God is not on our side. When we think like this, let this psalm remind us, turn your thoughts again, child of God, to who God is. Listen to what David is doing. He, he is praying his situation. He is praying that to God. He's laying out to God, here is what's going on. I am afraid. This is where I am. Is God big enough to, to handle that kind of prayer? Yes, and if you don't realize that, spend more time in the Psalms. They're honest. Time and time again, they give us this radical honesty. And when we see this through what Christ went through, it also makes a lot more sense because he himself is taunted. Even when he's on the cross, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. They're taunting him. There's no salvation for you, Jesus, in God. You have no hope in God. We know how that story goes. He dies not because he deserves to die at the hands of wicked men. He dies for the sins of others. And then three days later, he conquers death in glorious resurrection. His life is fully vindicated by the Father and the Spirit. Perfect. But 
he went, underwent these same kinds of taunts. Where will the psalmist turn in the depths of this problem? Where are we invited to turn? Verses 3 through 6, we see protection and peace. With all the connections between Psalm 1 and 2, uh, this is where Psalm 3 actually just really shines. We're introduced to the concept of salvation in God. David turns to the Lord. He announces truth and protection provided by God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. In order to remember the truth of who God is and what he is going to do in the life of David, David had to turn away from himself. Yes, he was willing, even in fear, being hunted by his own son, he was willing to pray it out loud to God and say the truth to him, and he's also willing to say that he needs the Lord. You are a shield. He's coming out of his own headspace. Can you hear it? He could be stuck there in one and two, stuck in his own head, looking for answers in his ability. He's an incredible military thinker. He's done it his entire life since he was a kid. He's been a violent man, a tactician. He can do a lot. He's capable of a lot. And he could easily get stuck in his own head in one and two, but he doesn't. You, Lord, are a shield about me. He's still under threat. One commentator notes, when a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force arrayed against him seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen in his true great stature and the enemies shrink to manageable proportions. If all your focus is, is only the problem, if it's only the betrayal, if it's only the, the broken things in your life or in the world, your God will be too small. Too small. It doesn't end in verse 2. He goes on, but you, Lord, are a shield about me. David sees the force of God on his side. Not only is God his shield, this, this um, all-encompassing shield about him, a place for him to hide, but he also says that he, God is his glory. David is confident in his relationship with God. You, O oh Lord, are my glory, his honor, his dignity, anything that makes David great, which is saying a lot. This is God's covenant king. This is the one who God says, you're not going to build me a house, David. I am going to build you a house. He would have a lot to boast in if it were on his own merit. But here David is saying, you are all those things for me. This is you. This is who you are, and this is what you're doing. If, if David has any glory, it comes from God and God alone. In light of this confidence, David said that God would be the lifter of his head. In a show of force, the defeated foe, we heard last time, would kiss 
right? The, the victor, if you came in and beat them, um, you would have to submit to them. Another way they did that is the victor would put their foot on the head of the enemy in the dust. This is the situation that David sees that he, he is in. What does it mean that he lifts his head? It means the, the foot of his enemy is lifted. David sees himself again in the power of God being able to stand. What is he doing with all these things? Shield, glory, lifter of my head. He's rooting his plea to God and what he knows to be true in relationship with God. Genesis 3 is covenant prayer. It's rooted in the covenant promises of God to David. He's not saying he's got the, the power, uh, the wherewithal to do any of this. He is utterly crying out in desperate humiliation to God, saying that God himself is the one to do everything. Ultimately, David is remembering the promises of God. So in desperation, in fear and shame, he gets out of his own head. And when he's out of his own head, he can think clearly long enough to remember God has promised me things. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, says Jesus, John 6. John 10, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hebrews 7, 25. He is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ. Matthew 11. Famously, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. Promise after promise after promise. And you can just be thankful that this is going to have to be short or I would just go on and on and on. And the only way you're ever going to hear that promise is to get out of your own head. If your complaint or your prayer life stops with complaint, here's my situation. And you don't remind yourself of the truth. You're shortchanging the reality that David sees. You, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. He's reminding himself of the truth of who God is. He's not letting his, his circumstances dictate to himself the realities of who God is. Child of God, do you remember like David who God is? Even in despair, do you remember Christ for you? Be more practical. How can we remember this? One way you are participating in right now. Good job. You're already applying this. 
the people of God, gathered, worshiping God, hearing his word, participating in his sacrament. That is a, a way that we remember these promises. Another way is just read your Bible. You get stuck in your own head and you forget who God is in light of the circumstances of your life. Read them again and again and again. We, we talk about here, we say this often, proclaim the gospel to your own heart. Tell your own heart the truth. One reason we confess our sin and hear assurance of pardon week in and week out is to remind ourselves of this. Get out of your own head. Remember who Christ is. Not only does David rest in this, this peace, not, not, he's reframing the situation uh, using good theology. God, you're in control. The result of that is this peace that is expressed in verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He's got a great snapshot in his head of the foe. He knows him well. He knows Absalom. He knows the force arrayed against him. And it says he went to sleep. I've never been in battle, never been in war. I've never been hunted like this, not, not a day in my life. I think it's very significant that after he's out of his head, after he realizes that the Lord himself is his shield, his glory, the lifter of his head, the next thing it says is that he, he's able to sleep. The reality of who God is in light of our trouble, in light of our difficult circumstances gives peace interesting too church history is seen in this sleeping the, the rising and uh, sleeping and rising of David the death and resurrection of Christ Clement of Rome says the voluntary and harmless sleep of Christ in the tomb of his resurrection interesting like David Christ was rejected without reason by his own people like David Christ was taunted by his enemies unlike David Christ suffers not because of a situation of his own making, but he suffers vicariously for others, including sinners like you and me. And like David wakes from this sleep of peace that God grants him, Christ arose from death. Child of God, remember in your lowest moment that you have Christ. And maybe more importantly than that, he has you. So our psalm begins with a, a very serious and troubling problem. Thousands of foes coming David's way. He's in the crosshairs. We see him pray his problem heavenward, directed toward God. We hear him recount his sure and, and covenant relationship with God. Finally, David closes with a plea in praise. The end of the psalm introduces a new theme to the psalms, one largely unexplored in this, the opening couplet. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. There are only two imperative verbs in the whole psalm. Imperatives imply action. Do something. And here they are, two of them. Arise, 
O Lord. Stand from your throne on my behalf. That's the image given to us of that of a, a warrior king who's seated on his throne. And David is saying, stand up, come and fight. Arise, O Lord. This is him asking the majestic Lord of Lords to, to stand from his throne. Sword drawn and, and come into the fray to fight his enemies for him. Here, David is taking up the cry of Moses as the ark led them into battle. Numbers 10, 35, hear the echo here. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee from before you. David is taking up his Bible in his prayer. He knows that was the prayer of Moses and he's taking it on his lips here. Arise, O Lord. And then the other imperative is save. Save, oh my God, deliver. Deliver. David knows that when God is engaged in combat, deliverance is sure. He doesn't just ask to be delivered from the enemy. He asks for the enemy to be utterly destroyed. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Notice the parallel between the enemy and the wicked. Again, a theme from Psalm 1 rising up here. He doesn't see his foes as being in any way righteous. And he never pleads his own righteousness. But when he is praying for God to act, it is, it is for injustice. He looks out in the world and he sees something unjust. And he is begging that the Lord would act against this injustice. What about this whole thing about smacking them in the mouth and breaking their teeth out? Is that the specifics of what he wants God to do? Like a good backhand God, maybe a good like break their jaw? No, he's, he's, he's framing their enemies like they're, they're wild animals. They're coming at me like wild animals, like beasts, like big cats and bears. And once they have their teeth removed, the threat is gone. He's saying, remove their threat against me, Lord. May these enemies not be successful. The conclusion of the psalm is one of benediction. I love this. Because he looks away from his own self. You, you, you might think all of this is framed just in him, but it's not. This phrase, salvation, belongs to the Lord. This phrase, when it's in this exact grammatical framework, only exists twice in Scripture. Can you guess the other one? Jonah chapter 2. And do you know where Jonah is when he says this? Do you remember what is going on in Jonah chapter 2? He's in the belly of the whale. He's in death. Certain death. And from this place of certain death, just like David is in right here, my enemies are coming against me. Everything is terrible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What a great reminder. 
They're acknowledging something today that each of us must acknowledge as well as them. That is this, we cannot save ourselves. We can't do it. If you came in here today with that framework, you need to hear this. Hear the psalmist. Hear God himself. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to you. You will not be good enough. You cannot get yourself out of the belly of the whale. You cannot change the circumstances. You need to be saved. And salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, David is talking about these temporal circumstances, but this utterly applies throughout the scriptures to our spiritual state. If God does not act, we will die in our sins. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Go back to our earlier question, where do we go when we're overwhelmed? Feeling shame? Seeing a huge mess in relationships in our world, maybe in in our own body. David, here in Psalm 3, is pointing us the only direction that we can go. Salvation is in God. Sin has separated us from God and demands judgment and wrath, and the only hope we have is that Christ has come to take that away. He has come to fully satisfy the demands of God, keeping the law perfectly, He has come to submit himself to the judgment of the law, passively handing himself over to death and the cross, and he has conquered death and hell and the grave in glorious resurrection. He drank this cup so we would not have to. David has to come out of his own head. My encouragement to you would be to do the same thing. Come out of your own head. It's okay to pray, honestly pray your plight to the Lord. Ask the Lord to act. Near the end of the week, I've I've wondered what the theological center of this is. Because so much of it can feel like, okay, it's, it's David here that we're looking at. It's David's plight. It's his call to the Lord. But let's look at this I'll just roll through it just to show you what I think the center is. The very first word, O Lord, whenever you see that in all caps, that is Yahweh, that is the covenant name for God, that is, that is to, to mean to us as um, powerful as it gets, but also relational, loving. This is the God who introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush. The first word, O Lord. Verse 3, you, O Lord, are a shield. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord. Verse 5, the Lord sustain me. Verse 7, arise, O Lord. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Does that frame the theological center for you? He's saying there's no help in me. I'm utterly wrecked. But he's crying out to the Lord for help. Six times in eight verses, he calls on God. 
Listen, do not be afraid to pray what you fear. Don't let shame keep you from crying out to God for help. And don't let pride keep you from acknowledging that salvation comes from Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Would you help us, Lord, to learn these lessons taught to us in your psalms? Lord, with the psalmist, may we echo, you are a shield about us. If we have any glory, it is utterly of you. And you, O Lord, are the lifter of our head in Christ. And for that, we give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.